Kia ora. G'day. I'm Dr Elise Dowden and I am the organiser and founder of the Australasian Post-Humanities. We exist to make the humanities radically accessible and you can find out more at aposthumanities.org. Our seminar series here is organised on the lands of the Bunrung and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation who we acknowledge as traditional owners and custodians. Paying respects to Indigenous elders past and present, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So yeah, I'm really excited for today's talk with Christine Daigle, who's Professor of Philosophy, the Chancellor's Chair for Research Excellence, and the Director of the Post-Humanism Research Institute at Brock University. Uh, she's also the Research Director and Core Fellow at the Helsinki Collegium for Advanced Studies. Her work's focused on existentialism and phenomenology, specifically on the works of Friedrich Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Simone de Beauvoir. Um, I was quite lucky to travel to meet Christine in Ontario when I was a PhD student at UQ a few years ago, and I was quite intimidated at the thought of talking to someone as accomplished at Christine, but she made me feel super welcome. Um, she insisted that me and my partner stayed with her like close neighbours and yeah, showed us Niagara Falls and yeah, it was so lovely to spend that time with Christine and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the series, Professor Christine Daigle. Thank you. Thank you, Elise. Uh, it's a quite different setting than our first encounter on my back patio, if you'll remember, surrounded by nature and, and whatnot. And here I'm in my tiny apartment in Helsinki and uh, we're meeting again online. So the wonders yeah. of technology. Yeah, it's quite a different setting for sure. So I suppose we'll just get straight into it, really. Yeah, thanks so much for being a part of this. I'm really yeah, stoked to have you here. We're going to be talking, obviously, about your paper, um, mm -hmm. which is on Beauvoir and posthumanism, and thinking about whether Beauvoir's work could be a posthumanism. Um, so, yeah, what are some of the central features of posthumanism in your conception, particularly given that they're often conflated with poststructuralism? I, th I think one uh, conflation I'm more worried about is that between posthumanism and transhumanism, and I'm sure you've you've addressed that um, in the podcast before. Um, but just very quickly, um, I, I'm not interested in in the cyborg and artificial intelligence and robots and and uploading consciousness and computer systems and things like that. Um, which is what transhumanists are doing, and in some ways um, enacting an hyperhumanism, right? Like trying to enhance the human. What I'm more interested in is the critical posthumanism um, that emerges from that lineage I talk about in the paper, the Spinoza, Nietzsche, Deleuze um, lineage um, that is really challenging our humanist conception of what the human being is. So challenging notions of human exceptionalism, for example, or challenging understandings of the human along the lines of, um, of dualistic um, thinking. So splitting the, the, the mind from the body, the human from the non-human, the human from nature, and always positing the one side of the binary as superior to. Um, so the human is superior to the non-human, superior to nature, et cetera, et cetera. One other aspect of, of post-humanism that I find attractive is, um, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about this today, is this um, attention to materiality and uh, material entanglements 
as well as um, the expansion of the realm of agency. So um, in a traditional humanist worldview, um, agency is held only by the human. However, a critical post-humanism will say um, many other beings, um, living and non-living um, for material feminists, um, have some form of agency. They certainly have agentic capacity. And it's important to recognize that. And we're entangled. Um, our own agency is entangled with those agentic capacities. Now, your question was um, uh, post-humanism versus post-structuralism. I want to work with both. <laughs> I don't think they, they are necessarily exclusive of one another. Um, because a post-structuralism pays attention to things like language, power structures, social constructions, social imaginaries as constitutive of subjects, constitutive slash oppressive. And in a critical post-humanism, you still have a subject. You still have an experience of being a subjective being and, and, and you're still uh, permeated and constructed by um, language and, and and uh, social imaginaries and whatnot. So I think those are um, the tools offered by post-structuralism are important to understand um, these phenomena um, and how they impact us. Um, but then we need a critical post-humanism to look into, and a material feminism to look into um, the material constitution of beings. Um, it was funny we, before we, when we started, there was a crow in the background that felt pretty entangled. Do you mind giving a really brief definition of what materialism or like new materialism is? It's okay if not. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, and I think there's an important distinction to make. So um, when I first uh, approached that field, I would uh, randomly interchange the terms. So I would say feminist materialism or material feminism. And then I read um, the book edited, uh, co-edited by Diana Cole and Samantha Frost. And in their introduction, I think it's them doing it, or it might be in the Ekman and Lamo book. Anyways, those two books are really important books um, about material feminisms. And the way they explained it, I thought was really great. Like um, there, there is such a thing as uh, feminist materialism. Now I'm see I'm thinking because I'm like okay, um, <laughs> which, which is which again? You still occasionally make that mistake. But a feminist materialism that would be a Marxist understanding of reality and Marxist analysis with a feminist angle. And interestingly, you see some of that at work in the second sex in the chapter on historical materialism, where Beauvoir says, well, materialism has a lot of interesting things to say um, about how um, labor is constructed and, and, and econ the economy and the power of uh, social structures and whatnot, but it fails to consider the particular location of women. So that's a feminist materialism. A material feminism, is a feminism that looks into materiality. And of course, embodiment, the body, the body as matter, but also matter that is the same kind of matter than, um, than the matter that surrounds you. Two key works, I think, Karen Barrett's Meeting the Universe Halfway, which has been tremendously influential. And then more recently, 
uh, cementofrost's biocultural creatures, Barrett goes into quantum physics and whatnot to talk about entanglement um, and, and try to explain how this applies to our realities. Um, and then cementofrost takes the biochemical route uh, looking into biochemical processes in bodies and living beings, showing that those processes are basically the same. <laughs> and, and so showing that um, we're constituted of the same matter um, and we're always entangled, we're porous beings, we're uh, permeable beings and whatnot. So that crow that was making duck sounds earlier that, that that presence, that material presence, the sounds that were made like this permeated our even our virtual encounter. And so there, there's a materiality to all of this because of course sound is, um, is waves. And, and so, you know, how that travels and hits your eardrums or the microphone and gets to my earphones, right? All of that. So, um, so a material feminism is, is really looking into processes at work in matter and looking at us as beings made of matter. Oh, that was a really good explanation. Thank you. In your paper, you argue that Beauvoir challenges humanism by denying the separation between the mind and the body. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how her ethics of ambiguity makes for a foundational post-humanism? Yeah, I, I would want to be careful here. I'm, I'm not trying to argue that Beauvoir is presenting us with a post-humanism or a material feminism. Mm -hmm. I don't think she is. So, so we have to be really clear about that. Is she opening a door, cracking a concept open, allowing for us to then um, get through that door and push the thinking further to elaborate a post-humanist perspective, a material feminist perspective, yes, she is. So, um, so I think we, we need to be um, very clear on that. How she does that. So what I'm claiming basically is that she's a precursor. She's not herself a post-humanist material feminist. Um, how she does that, I think, is by looking into the notion of embodiment and taking very seriously um, how, uh, taking seriously the notion that the body shapes consciousness. You, you can't separate uh, consciousness from the body. You're always talking about an embodied consciousness. It's always a consciousness that is situated, that is in the world, that is in the presence of others. Um, and so whatever sharp distinctions that the history of philosophy, of humanist philosophy has um, put in place to describe the human and its experiences, um, these sharp distinctions um, do not reflect in her mind what is actually a, a very messy um, network of relations, what she refers to as ambiguity, right? Um, so we exist as ambiguous, um, we experience it, ourselves as ambiguous, and when we're confronted with these philosophical conceptions, it's like, oh, but, but this is not how I experience things, right? Um, so, um, so I think her, her notion of ambiguity and criticism of these dualisms um, is the first step um, toward um, the, the more radical 
reconceptualization of the subject that we find in critical posthumanism, for example. It's funny, I always read humanism as being like quite inclusive. Like when Sartre wrote that existentialism is a humanism, I was always like, wow, this is great. This is really inclusive. And now I'm like, oh, wait, what about all the crows, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, humanism, what, what critical posthumanists have been um, arguing is that humanism has been anything but inclusive mm. <laughs> um, because the, the human of humanism, when you look at how it's construed, you can finally conclude that, well, that human of humanism is really a white, able-bodied, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-class man. Um, that's the human subject of humanism. Any mm. other subject that doesn't match that definition um, is going to be relegated to a, uh, a lesser position. Um, and, and that explains um, really well, I think, um, the emergence of all the different regimes of oppression that we've seen um, in history, yeah. right? Uh, from the West anyways, right? Like the, the Western type of humanism is certainly has operated in this way, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, we've got another bird now. Um, That's great. Yeah, there's a lot of trees by my house. So you talk about vital materialism in this paper. I was wondering if you could give a definition of this term and whether it relates to affect or enchantment. Because yeah, I'm quite interested in the, these concepts of affect and enchantment. Um, okay, so vi uh, vital materialism, um, this is really the, 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 the material feminism that, that uh, takes its roots in Spinoza. Um, and, um, you know, the, this kind of idea that, that materiality is vibrant with, uh, with life. Um, life is doing things um, even and, and some people will push that even further and, and um, I've, I've been writing about uh, multi-species ethics um, these past few days and, and multi-species extends that even further to say not just living things but also non-living things um, so the abiotic um, is as vibrant as the biotic and all of us here online right now, um, we have a living proof. Um, we're using computers that are abiotic, but are certainly doing things and vibrant with um, all kinds of possibilities. And, and, and it certainly is generative in the way that it, it allows for this to even be unfolding. It's part of um, the unfolding. It's, it's um, it's functioning well or not, uh, right? Like depending on your internet connection. I mean, so far so good, but right. And 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 then you have the birds outside your house. Um, I miss the birds from my house here in Helsinki. I'm I don't have many trees around my place, but um, so right. Like all of these little things that happen. Like there's constantly some some kind of um, emergence and burgeoning of life and bubbling of life around us, uh, something we may not be in a position to recognize if we tend to see ourselves as this, um, I'm, I'm gesturing towards my eyes and upper head here because, you know, 
isn't that where our reason is and our consciousness right and and if this is how we how we experience ourselves as as this kind of floating mind oh that happens to be stuck in this body um then we may not be in a position to appreciate that all of these things are actually um unfolding around us but around us is wrong they're unfolding through us um, this vital um, materiality, this vibrant matter, as Jane Bennett calls it, um, is always permeating us. And as it is, it is constitu constituting us. So right now, we're not only having an intersubjective experience, which is something the existentialists and phenomenologists are really uh, focusing on, right, including Beauvoir, um, Yes, we're having that intersubjective experience, but we're also having an inter-transmaterial experience, um, each and every one of us, um, that is also at the same time constituting us. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's an, that's an important insight to follow. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking earlier as well, like whatever you eat, whatever you put into your body, it doesn't matter like whatever kind of diet you have, if there's stuff in the soil that's going into the food and then that goes into your body and then that it has a flow on effect and you know like every, there's nothing you can't do anything without being impacted by the world you're not in a little box you know although we yeah, are literally in little boxes on screens I guess but <laughs> well right now we are but we're also in a space right mm. um and and um there are other beings in that space I have flowers on my table I have a plant um there's um there's a certain light coming from outside it's it's not as bright as it could be not as dark either all of that um is inflecting my current experience of of being christine right like christine mm. is what christine is this assemblage of all these things that are happening at this moment and Christine is constantly fluctuating, as is everybody right now, because these experiences change, right? Um, you were saying nutrition, for example, that was a big theme for Nietzsche, uh, for example, right? Like nutrition and movement, and, and he made a lot of fun about German philosophy being a philosophy <laughs> that comes out of drinking too much beer, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's something serious in, in that, like um, whatever you ingest, I mean, all of these um, <clears throat> material particles are doing something in your body. And also like we, our bodies themselves are assemblages of, of how many species and beings, right? Um, we tend to think of the body, but the body is multiple, right? Mm -hmm. um, Tom Van Doren, who talks about multi-species was saying we are a multi-species ourselves um, among other species and multi-species, right? <clears throat> so all of these um, interactions, I mean, it gets to a point where, where it's, it's difficult to wrap our head around that. So we're a body that is an assemblage of particles, but it's also an assemblage of other bodies that are themselves assemblages of particles. And there's constantly interactions um, uh, among those. And this is what makes us, so us, the I, the human subject in this context is is much less uh, much less of a solid thing 
than what it had been conceived to be, right? It's, it's something that's constantly changing and morphing and, and, and um, in some ways uh, fragile. I, I use the notion in my work of post-human vulnerability. Um, so yes, we're, we're always, you know, quote unquote, at the mercy of, um, but in some ways, if we're trying to protect ourselves from these entanglements, if, we, if we're trying to withdraw so that, so that we're, we're not going to be changed by these relations, then we're going to deprive ourselves. We're going to uh, harm ourselves. So yes, we're vulnerable because we're porous and open and permeated by these relations, but we need to embrace that vulnerability and, and openness and, and, and understand that this is the kind of being we are. So rather than fight the kind of being we are and try to be something else, to really embrace it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because you can't have an eye without all the others. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. So in the paper, you talk about a scene from Beauvoir's She Came to Stay, uh, where Francoise has a strong reaction to a jacket in her grandmother's home. Can you say a bit more about that story? Because I really, yeah, I like that little story. Well, there's that story. And also there's, um, there's another uh, part. Yeah, it's in the same novel, actually, where Francoise is in the theater and the theater is empty and, and she's walking through it and it's dark and, and there's the empty seats and everything. So, there, so, so there, these, two, these two stories are really interesting because you have the character trying to figure out something about that matter what is matter separate from the human, basically, right? So the old jacket that is thrown on a chair. Um, what is it like to be a jacket, <laughs> right? Um, basically, that's, that's Francoise's question, right? What is it like to be that jacket? And she's trying to, to she's asking herself the question, and she's, she's trying to think, I am an old jacket. And of course, it's not working. Um, because you can't, right, you, you can't know or understand what it is to be a jacket. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, in, in many ways, this is a really interesting way to approach materiality and material things around us, right? Like, what is it, what is it like to be my computer right now? Um, and, and I, of course, I can't think that, um, but to ask myself that question is actually to, I think, to ask the question of the, the going back to this notion of uh, vital materiality of the life of objects. It's asking ourselves, you know, what are objects doing? What are things doing? Um, can, and, and of course, we have no way to know if, like, we're, we're positing they're not self-reflective because we have a certain understanding of what reflectivity is, reflexivity, I always get confused anyway, of, of being conscious of oneself, right? Um, and of course, that understanding is based on our own experience of being conscious of ourselves, but that is entirely uh, um, dependent on the kind of beings we are. So if we're a radically different kind of being, we might have a form of consciousness that would still be self-conscious, but would be completely foreign to our way of being in the world. Well, it's a funny story for me. I, I, was, I was giving a paper in which I was uh, using a passage in Nietzsche where he talks about 
the polyp being, and he's, he's, make, he's using that as a metaphor for how we constitute ourselves through our experiences. So polyp grabs nourishment. Um, so that's his, his uh, metaphor in Daybreak. And I was trying to draw a parallel between this, the self of a polyp and a human self. And Dorothea Olkowski, who's, um, who's a phenomenologist, she, she was strongly opposed to, 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 my, um, to my approach to this. And, and, and her thing was, well, polyps, they, we, you can't use polyps because polyps are not conscious. They don't have a brain. And, you know, ever since she said that to me, I've, I, I've been trying to prove her wrong, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> in, in some ways. But, but I'm think, all I'm thinking about is, sure, but how, why would a brain be necessary? I mean, we may think it's necessary for us because that's the kind of being we are. But maybe for a polyp, that's completely different. Um, maybe the fact that they are sort of a stomach um, they're very um, primitive, but again, in relation to us, right? They're very different being. Um, maybe that's sufficient to have a form of consciousness and, and to know, to, to, to be able to feel things in the world and, and, and do things and have experiences and, and have some self-consciousness. But of course, that will always be inaccessible to me. That experience mm -hmm. will not be accessible. And, and to go back to your question, that, that's what happens in the story where Françoise is trying to think like an old jacket. She can't, right? Yeah, that was a great explanation. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to add? Well, one thing, one thing I would like to say, and I, I guess as I was working on this paper, you know, sometimes people think, oh, a paper appears in the world and... This is how it was thought about from the first moment the person had the idea and then it was a smooth process. Um, it never is. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'd like to say that one of the objections I was encountering along the way, because you submit your paper, you present it at conferences, you get some feedback and whatnot. And one of the objections was, um, oh, but Beauvoir wouldn't say this, or Beauvoir wouldn't come to that conclusion, or this is not actually what she's saying. Um, and so I tried in the paper to, to make this very clear, right? Like what we started with that, no, she, I'm not saying she was a critical post-humanism before anybody else. Um, so yes, we need to be attentive to what an author um, is saying, and we need to make every effort possible not to distort what they were saying and, and to really understand what their own agenda is, what, what their goals are um, in their writing. Beauvoir has a very specific goal with the second sex, and I think she does a great job of reaching that goal. Um, and so, so, yes, we need to be attentive to that, but we, I think we're also entitled to then work with that foundation and say, okay, now if I'm going to take this and consider another philosophical approach or take a slightly different perspective, where does that take me? So can Beauvoir help me think uh, vibrant materiality even if she never talked about vibrant materiality? Yes, she can, right? Um, and so I, I, I think that sometimes objections to um, this kind of work um, 
remain too attached to an exegetical type of approach to those great authors, right? And I think it's a shame if, we, if, if all we're going to do as philosophers is to um, interpret and comment on what those great thinkers have said. I think we need to, yes, we need to do that again. We need to not distort what they were saying or misrepresent them. But um, I think it's much more interesting to try to see what we can do with what they had to say and take it further, which is what I think um, critical post-humanists and, and material feminists and other kinds of feminists as well have done um, with Beauvoir's work. The Australasian Post-Humanity Seminar Series is a digital, accessible space for thinking across disciplines, time zones and travel bands. We exist to make the humanities radically accessible, so we run classes, reading groups, seminars and more all across Australasia. You can join us at aposthumanities.org. Thanks for listening and we'll see you there.